friends, we're continuing a series of messages uh, just at the very beginning of that series um, from e the book of Ephesians. We're going to work our way all the way through it. We're in the second of those uh, 11 sermons on the book of Ephesians. So I invite you to turn there to Ephesians chapter 1, looking at uh, verses 15 through 23 today. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. We read these words as, or I jumped to the next page, sorry. <laughs> we read these words. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is a palm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a palm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. If you cannot preach like Peter, if you cannot pray like Paul, you can tell the love of Jesus and say he died for all. Beloved, if you've ever wondered why those words, if you cannot pray like Paul, are part of that African-American spiritual, look no further than Ephesians chapter 1, 15 to 23. What a prayer here that the Apostle Paul says he has been praying for this little persecuted church he planted in Ephesus right after he got a haircut. That's what Acts 18 tells us about. You can look it up. It says the Apostle Paul got a haircut, sailed to Ephesus on the west coast of Syria, and when he got there, he went straight to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And while he didn't stay long there initially, it is apparent that his teaching was enough to sway the Jews with Jesus' good news. And voila, a congregation was born. In my opinion, the fact that Luke 
in writing the book of Acts, actually reports on Brother Paul's haircut in the middle of his church planting account surely speaks to the veracity of this story. Don't you think so? Ten years later, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter back to the church in Ephesus. He had visited there a couple times more in those ten years, one time even spending two to three years preaching and teaching and praying with them and for them. Ten years later, he wrote the letter, and this prayer is a highlight, is it not? Incidentally, as time went on, most scholars believe this became a headquarters for the Apostle John's ministry, who tradition has it brought Jesus' mother Mary to live here. If you recall, Jesus from the cross had turned responsibility for his mother over to the Apostle John. And it seems apparent John took that privilege very seriously. And John, tradition says, wrote his three epistles from Ephesus there at that time. Now, the church there was not without its faults. Paul wrote to Timothy about it urging him to get to and stay in Ephesus and correct some of the shifting doctrines in that early church. Over time, false teachers rose up and brought division to the church. It split, and the apostle John, in exile on the island of Patmos, wrote about Ephesus in the book of Revelation, that they were doing good things, by trying to keep the church free from doctrinal error, but they had abandoned their first love, which was showing love to others. Eventually, the congregation died in the second century, closed its doors, as we euphemistically say in the 21st century. For a number of years, it still remained a meeting place because of its central location for those big church councils back then. But we've digressed now into decades of historical context. What about the prayer? What a prayer it is. He just eases into it, talking about it, and then starts praying. It's the first couple of prayers. Actually, it's the first of a couple of prayers in Paul's letter. We'll talk about another one a few sermons down the road in chapter 3. What about this prayer, though? It follows right on the heels of the apostles' giant blessing of God, his giant praise of God. I didn't emphasize that last time. We just pulled four truths out of that blessing that Paul reminded us of. You have a family, you have forgiveness, you have a future, and you have a for sure in the Holy Spirit. We didn't talk about the fact that those four truths were part of a giant blessing of God. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. If you've closed your Bibles, please open them again. Ephesians 1. 3 to 14. Turn there if you would. Just before we read, are you there? Verse 3 through verse 14. I know we looked at it last time, but I neglected to mention. Just take a good look at it. I neglected to mention to you a really fascinating thing about those 12 verses. 
They comprise 257 words in the original Greek. 257 words, just a few words shy of the length of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal all the way to this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln wrote 272 words that changed the course of a nation. He did it in 10 sentences. The Apostle Paul, a benediction of praise to God that echoed across the world, 257 words, 10 sentences, no, one sentence. One sentence of blessing to God, of praise to God, over and over. Praise be to God, to the praise of his glory, his glorious grace. 257 words, 12 verses, one sentence. Praising God, telling him and us what God has done through Jesus Christ, our predestination, our redemption, our forgiveness, our inclusion in Christ, our inheritance, and God had it all mapped out and in process before the creation of the world. One giant sentence, praising God for all of it and telling this early church and us all about it. And where does Paul go next? to his knees in prayer. Imagine the prayer prayed by this Apostle Paul for this Ephesian congregation after hearing this giant doxology to God. Imagine this prayer prayed by the Apostle Paul for this faith community congregation right here, right now. And he begins his prayer. For this reason because of this salvation i just praise god about for 257 words in one sentence for this reason because i have so much gratitude in my heart to god about what he has done for you for this reason i am moved to pray for you and in fact i can't stop giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers because what god did for you it has completely changed your lives you have faith in the lord jesus and you have love in your hearts for all God's people. Wow. Imagine that, congregation. They loved them all. They loved all God's people in the church. Not just some. Not just the ones who were just like them. No, they loved the rich ones, the poor ones, the quiet ones, the loud ones, the normal ones, the ones who might have acted a little weird. All God's people. They showed love to imagine that. Would Paul say that about us? Paul tells them because of that evidence, which only lends more credence to the reality of what God has done for you, that God completely changed you. I'm so filled with gratitude for what God has done that I keep on asking for things from God for you. Here's what I'm asking him for, for you. Here's what those things are. First, I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, Paul is writing to believers in Jesus already. 
So Paul is not praying here that some of them who aren't followers of Jesus would become followers of Jesus. Here Paul assumes he is writing to those who already are followers of Christ. Now that doesn't mean Paul thinks evangelism and telling the good news aren't important. It's just that here he's writing to and praying for people who are already believers and he wants them to have more wisdom and more revelation about things about God. He wants them to look at everything from God's perspective. Wants God to be the object of their devotion, their adoration, their reverence. We sometimes call that the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom. But he wants more than that for them. He wants the fear of the Lord to increase for them. He wants God's wisdom in their hearts more and more. Tell me, beloved, where do you think is the most important? Listen to the question. Where do you think is the most important, the most obvious, the most available place we have to go to have God's wisdom and revelation increasing in us? Where do you think? God's word. Of course. That's where we go. God's word is the source of all wisdom. And God's Holy Spirit was the inspiration of that word. God's spirit breathed out that word into the Bible writers. And they wrote down what was breathed into them by God's Holy Spirit. R.C. Sproul says it like this. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the truth of God to us when we read that word. And then the Holy Spirit remains, of course, and illumines God's word in our hearts and minds so that we may grasp it, understand it properly. The Spirit works in Christians to help us understand God's revelation, the Bible that God has already given to us. That's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians. I'm praying that God will give the Holy Spirit to you in such a way that you grow in faith and in knowledge of God's word every time you read it. You grow closer to Jesus Christ. You grow in your walk of faith. You grow in your obedience. You grow in your behavior. You grow in what you think, say, and do. You don't stay in one place. I've learned Jesus saved me at the cross. Well, that's it. End of story. We can all go home. No. The Holy Spirit has other things to make you wise about how you live, how you love, how you have hope, how you interact with others, how you show compassion and love, and so on. And Paul includes the goal of all this illumination by the Holy Spirit is that you might know God better your whole life through. It's a lifelong learning, a lifelong experience, a lifelong enterprise for the Christian person. We never say, in other words, I've read enough, studied enough, learned enough, know enough, been convicted enough, been taught enough, been corrected enough, been trained enough. No, it's never enough. It's lifelong. For as long as your fingers are able to open that page or your eyes able to see that text, or your ears able to hear those words. How does the old hymn go? While I breathe, I pray, 
but also while I breathe. While I breathe. I want the Holy Spirit to breathe his word into me, illumining my mind, my heart, my soul, my spirit. And that was the first part of Paul's prayer here for these saints. Then he prays this. I pray that the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. How strange. It seems like he's mixing up some metaphors here, doesn't it? The eyes of your heart. Our eyes are up here in our heads, aren't they? What are the eyes of my heart? You realize, of course, the, that the, your heart in the New Testament, including here, it is a reference to my central disposition, my inclination, the bent of my soul in a certain direction, my bias, my prejudice, my viewpoint. And the natural viewpoint of my heart, my natural bias, my sinful bias is always to be against God. A heart of stone against God. What does scripture say God does for his people in Ezekiel? God says that he will remove from his people their heart of stone and replace it, giving them a heart of flesh. When we say something or someone has a heart of stone, we say they are set in their ways. They are unchanging. They can't be convinced of some other way of thinking. And Paul is praying here that the Holy Spirit would soften that stone-cold heart into a heart of flesh. And the Holy Spirit does that when we first come to believe. The eyes of our heart are opened, heart of flesh. But over time, the Holy Spirit, surely you agree, needs to faithfully, consistently turn our old heart of stone more and more into a heart of flesh. More and more, open the eyes of our hearts so that more and more, we are open to the things of God. Beloved, you know this. There are things in you and in me, that do not please God one bit. Attitudes, concepts, ideas, values, things in my life, in my heart that are stone cold. Stone cold set away from the things of God. And it does not please him. That's sin, of course. Wherever I harbor sin in my heart, that part of my heart is stone cold toward the things of God. Sin clouds my thinking, my will, my desire, my affections. And those are the places in my heart that the Holy Spirit needs to change. That the, the Apostle Paul prayed about for the Ephesian church. That the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of their hearts and let the fullness of God's truth enter in. We are in continual need for the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts of stone, turning them into the hearts of flesh. That need will never go away until we are made new, glorified in heaven. I hope I recognize that about myself, and I hope you do as well. And I'm so glad... Paul prayed this prayer for the Ephesian church and for us to make us realize that our Christian faith is, is not some sort of once and done thing. 
But it is day in, day out, every single day, the Holy Spirit softening us, softening our hearts, opening us up, opening our hearts to love more and more the things of God. And Paul's prayer continues. I want the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart for this purpose, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, why is hope important? It's the anchor of the soul, right? Hebrews 6.19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. God wants us to live with hope. Earlier in the great one-sentence blessing God or the Apostle Paul gave, 257 words. He told us about that future, that future hope, that future surety, sure hope, that one glorious day when Jesus returns, when the times reach their fulfillment, and Jesus brings unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Paul is telling them about their future, sure hope in the new heavens and the new earth, about which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. The apostle Paul is grounding his prayer for the Ephesians, whom he has seen have such wonderful love for each other. He wants that love for the saints and for those who will become believers through them. He wants that love to be grounded in the hope that they have, that he's praying they will know. What a reason for sharing love, our future hope. We love those around us. We care for those around us. We share the good news with others because we have a future home with Christ that is so incredible. And so fantastic, our love for others must be rooted and grounded in that hope. It's what motivates us because it tells us our work in this world, our care for people right now is not in vain. We do it because we have incredible hope. And Paul prays that the eyes of their heart would also be open because then we will know God's power. I don't know about you, but more and more it seems Christians, I'm sure you've seen it, are being squeezed further and further into what can only be described as obsolescence. Or say it another way, squeezed further and further into weakness. In a world so rocked with violence and hatred and unbelief, how can a Christian like you or me, stand strong, stand tall. You know what Paul says in that weakness, in that seeming obsolescence of the Christian faith? I'm praying that you know that God has incomparably great power for you who believe. You must speak up. You must go against the grain. You must take a stand. You must live a better way. You must. And Paul prayed, and you and I need to pray that we don't do those things out of weakness or obsolescence. No, we do those things from a position of incomparably great power. No matter how it might be perceived or ridiculed or laughed at, we do those things. We must and we can. For look at the power that God affords us. It's power that is like the working of his mighty strength. 
And by the way, that strength is a strength God the Father exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms where he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name invoked, not only now, but also when he comes again and we enter heaven. Everything is under Jesus' feet. He's head of everything, head over everything for the church, for the church, for us. So when you think the different way you look, the different words you say, the different way you behave, the different compassion you show, the different things you stand up for, when you think you are doing those things from a position of weakness or obsolescence or fear that you'll be laughed at or looked at like Christianity is a big sad joke, think again. You do all those things whether anyone recognizes it or not. Whether it is mocked or not, you do all those things from a position of incomparably great power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that paid for every single one of your sins, my sins at the cross. Mahmoud from Niger surely knows this prayer the Apostle Paul wrote knows this prayer is prayed for people like him, where he is daily threatened by violent extremist attacks. Mahmoud ignores the likelihood of persecution to continue the work of God with singular focus. He says this, when I do the work of God, I never get tired, and I don't feel hungry. I even forget to eat. This prayer for God's power is for Mahmoud, answered by God for Mahmoud. The Apostle Paul says here, I'm praying, I haven't stopped praying that you know that power of God. What a prayer for that Ephesians church. What a prayer for persecuted Mahmoud. But what a prayer for us too. Let's pray it again. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for all the saints. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Father, we pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you better. We pray for the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in us holy people, that we may know your incomparably great power that is like the working of your mighty strength that you exerted in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God, you placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for us, his body, the fullness of Christ who is filling everything in every way. God, help us to pray this prayer regularly and please answer it anytime we need it. For Jesus' sake, amen.